Sounds confused. Is he senile? The voice on this tape is coming from an 11-year-old girl. They're calling it England's Amityville. There is a family that desperately needs our help. After everything we've seen, there isn't much that rattles either of us anymore. But this one, this one still haunts me. Does it feel like the voice is coming from inside you? More like it's coming from behind me. Like I'm being used. Janet, are you all right? Stop, Stop calling, calling me Janet. She's such a good girl. What's there wrong with her? An oppressing spirit will try to force you to commit the ultimate sin. And what's that? Murder? Suicide? Or both? You believe us, don't you? Sensing a presence? I'm not sensing anything. All I can sense is their own fear. <laughs> And welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the podcast that covers every horror movie franchise, one movie and one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Lindsay Travis. Lindsay, how are we doing today? I'm good. I'm ready to rock. We survived the hurricane of Crawl, and I'm ready to get back to the Warren family. And now it's hurricane and out here. It's going to be mm-hmm. like we talked for the patrons last night about your fear of storms, and now <laughs> it looks like it's ready to get like the skies are completely blackened outside. It's fantastic. Ooh, it's sunny here now, so. Can't wait. But we have, before we get into the movie, we have like a really cool guest this week. No, we, we always have cool guests. We have a really cool guest this week. So Lindsay, can you do the honors and introduce our guest? 
Sure. Um, you might have heard of her from her book, I'm Down. It was her memoir about her experience growing up in Rainier Valley, Rainier, I don't know how to say it. Um, she's written short fiction like Hangry and Class Warfare, and it's contributed to anthologies like I Killed, a list of stories from The Road by Comedians. Uh, but she's here today talking about her first feature film, The Spooky Whodunit, dominating the horror conversation right now. The writer of the current hottest horror comedy, Werewolves Within, we have Mishna Wolf. Oh my God. What an intro. Yeah, um, I'm glad Welcome. you guys like the film. Clearly you like the film. That makes me happy. We did. It's fantastic. And listeners, it is now out. If you haven't had a chance to see it yet, uh, it has its digital release on Friday, February 2nd. Uh, if you are in a select market, you actually can catch this theatrically right now. Um, so either or, and I don't know about like a physical release, so maybe we can discuss that a little bit if anyone wants to collect a physical copy of it. It is going to top like a lot of best of lists this year. Like it is so much fun. Oh, um, thank you. And thank it, it hit no, me that's... today. Oh, I'm sorry. We're good. Let me continue heaping praise on you first before <laughs> we do that. Um, you know, people always ask, especially come October, like, what is a good horror movie for people that don't necessarily watch horror movies? And this is going to be one of those titles that should top the list. Like, it has a lot for horror fans, but if you want to, like, sneak horror in um, to someone that might not necessarily love the genre, like, there's so much to love about this movie in terms of the, the characters, the whodunit, like, just the comedy of it. It's so much fun. It's really, really fun. Well, thank you. So, thank you. I, you could tell I was uncomfortable with the praise. I was like, stop, stop. We're like, we loved, we, loved um, we loved it. No, so. no. Well, that, that leads to my first question, which is this. Um, you know, obviously, if your last name was actually Dracula, would mm -hmm. this have been a vampire movie? I think it would have. I mean, I do have a weird wolf obsession because it is my last name. And it's not like when your last name is Wolf, it's not like a a stand-in for something else like it, it your ancestors were called wolf mm -hmm. it's it's always been a stand-in just for that animal so i yeah i do have a certain affinity i'll say were you like i'm sure you've chatted about this a lot were you super into the game before you started adapting it is it like something you played all the time no, it wasn't a game I played all the time. I actually, I, I met this game at the Ubisoft Women's Fellowship and I played a ton of their games and it's a really awesome fellowship for anyone with a screenplay in the drawer, you can, you can apply. When I applied, it was, it was much more limited. The people who could apply, the parameters have loosened tremendously and any old gal um, or a person who identifies as a gal can apply for this fellowship and uh, have a good old time. And honestly, when I got the fellowship, it's a paid fellowship. So I was like, I'm being paid to play video games. This is like my 12 year old self cannot stop high-fiving me. Like it was just like, they give you games, you walk home with games and you're just like, wow, Amazing. free stuff. Um, but um, I, I really clicked to this game because it was the first game where I, I, I kind of logged on and I watched gameplay and people were fighting. And there was just like all this conflict going on while people were playing the game. And I just, that sparked to me, it felt very human. And there was something in it that I was like, this is the feel of this game is like conflict and suspicion. And I can run with that. I feel like that's that's a microcosm for so many other things we're dealing with as, as a country, as a planet. Um, it, it just seemed ripe for the pickings. Yeah. 
I feel like um, obviously it's being compared to like Clue, but of course the game is really compared to Mafia. Were there like other things? I mean, I haven't played the game, but were there things that you plucked from the game, other movies, other things that like you really threw into your screenplay? Yeah, I mean, uh, just watching the game, I felt like there, you had a very contained space. The game is set in a town called Galliston that's set, like, it's a medieval town. Uh, it's There's very dour Eastern European faces that look like they've seen some famine. Um, <laughs> and it's, 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 it's a hard living group. And uh, it was the containment of the space. It just takes place in this, you don't go anywhere. You just sit around this fire and there are so many movies that you could say that about. I mean, The Thing, Alien, Hateful Eight. Um, there's just a lot of references for, for this kind of a space. And it had, it had a certain mood that I could see creating characters around and conflicts. Um, so the, the, the game, even though it has no narrative, really lent the field to this movie and the sensibilities, because um, it is a whodunit. It's like an Agatha Christie. It's like an Agatha Christie game in, in yeah. its own way. Yeah. Um, I like wondered if there was like any moment. Like, did you have this whole cast on set banging out around of this game? Uh, no, I wish it's a VR game, so we right. might have a lot of headsets <laughs> on set, and I think that would have been a little cost prohibitive. But um, <laughs> you know, it would, that would be fun. That would be really fun. It, it, there's actually, you can't actually pick who you play with though right now. So, oh, but yeah, it's a little, little problem. Okay. So you log in and you're in with like a room of strangers, basically. Like you can't do like a dedicated server. Well, you get to know each other pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I feel like that ups the stakes for sure. I know there's, there's like a card based version of the game too. It's like Night of the Werewolf or something. Where you can yeah, sit I've heard around about the that. table and do something similar. It's a lot of fun. I know but that all like these, oh, but all these social deduction games, I always felt like I get killed first. Like mm -hmm. I, I don't know why. I think I have that big lady voice that people are just like, she's gotta go. I don't I always wow. get booted in Among Us when I'm do like you? always. And I'm like, why? I don't know. Even when I'm playing like just like in the chat. I don't know. I guess I'm suspicious. We did yeah. like Among Us this year at the school I work at as a counselor. I would do like lunch groups when we were virtual and we would do like Among Us. And I whenever I would play, I would do the corny down. All right, you know, let me know if you're it. And inevitably, <laughs> like one out of every three times, someone would say, Oh, it's me. And you like, would get no. them right away. Right. So it's great. <laughs> Kids weren't that bright. Fantastic. Love yeah. them. Have, God love them. They're not that bright. Um, <laughs> Video, game, video games are notoriously like difficult, it seems, to adapt to screen. Like there's not a lot of great adaptations of, from game to screen and vice versa. Like okay. when you looked at this and you mentioned like the kind of like campsite nature of it, um, what do you think like really stood out in terms of like, all right, here is the hook and we're gonna be able to like do something fun and also make something completely different. Like you said, it's not set in midi, it's not set in like medieval times. What, what was the hook where you can be like, we got something to work with here? I think that I saw these characters sort of, like I said, a microcosm. I, I was thinking about, you know, archetypes and I was thinking about voting blocks. I was thinking about, you know, what if this was in a gentrifying town? Like what if there were townies that had been there a long time. There were people coming in 
um, and that was creating some tension. There was just like no modern topic that I couldn't put in this town um, and no sort of topical issue that, that couldn't be going on. So it was really about the undercurrents behind ferreting out the werewolf and, and the private justice angle that were so compelling to me. Um, I, I love stories about people taking the law into their own hands. And it just seemed like, you know, big quirky characters taking the law into their own hands um, and with a werewolf was, it was a winner. It just felt like a winner to me. And, and getting back to what you said about adapting video games. I, I think that a lot of video game adaptations that I've seen took themselves very seriously. And I think that for me, I love video games and I, I think I'm an average video game uh, player. I was going to say user because that's how it feels sometimes. <laughs> I feel like a user. Um, is, but they're really using me. The games are using me. Um, I, I'm, they're not a tool. I'm a tool. Um, <laughs> Same. But, but I felt like I like fun and I like things that are fun and I like things to be fun and comedic and not take themselves super seriously. And I don't think I'm alone in that. And to me, a werewolf movie that took itself super seriously was like an a-hole move. No offense, but like if you, a self-serious werewolf movie was like not something I was interested in making. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned archetypes and I feel like this is such a large ensemble movie and you have so many characters that are so specific and like who they are plays. I mean, the whole story moves along because of the specific traits of these characters. Was there like a way, yeah. a strategy you employed to create them or how did you keep track of that and use that? Well, I think I, you know, I started out like looking at Agatha Christie movies and, uh, and looking at Clue, for example, where people are not just named by their color, like they're named by their job in a lot of cases, Professor Plum, Colonel Mustard. Um, and when you're playing these social deduction games, you usually have a job. Um, when you play Werewolves Within, there's like a butcher and he's wearing an apron and there's a, um, like a washerwoman. Um, so it's really easy from there to sort of say, okay, this should feel like that. Even if it's not that, even if these characters are more nuanced and more modern and they have more going on. And then my next thinking was like, how can I upend these archetypes? Like, what can I do to make my version of them different? Like the, uh, the town mechanic is female. Now that's not like the most you know, revolutionary thing in the world, but it's not something you see in an Agatha Christie novel. Um, so it was just sort of playing with these archetypes. And obviously the ending is a big upending of an archetype. And um, that was really fun and important to me. And it I always started with that end in mind. Wouldn't it be fun if? One thing, even though the characters are archetypes, it feels like you find the humanity in each of them. Um, even though like one of the nice thing, one of the fun aspects about this movie is how evenly divided this town is across, you know, political spectrums, whether you're socially liberal or very conservative, but in all of the characters, you seem to find like humanity in each of them where they never devolved a complete parody. What were some of the challenges in developing a character like that? And how were you able to kind of 
find that spark where you're like, you know, this might be someone far different from my background and outlook on life, but I can still find something where my audience can relate to them. Well, I mean, I think we all feel like there's something in every sort of demo that we relate to, even if it's not our entire thing. And I think um, Finn Wheeler, uh, our main character is someone who really is a connector of people and he wants everyone to get along and he sees the, the possibility for sort of, you know, crossing these, these barriers we have to connecting and creating community. And he's a nice guy and he wants people to get along. And so this entire movie is sort of a torture device for him that really pushes his limits as a nice guy. And, and for me, it was really important not to take a side. Um, I needed to be Finn Wheeler in some, in some ways as I was writing this. And a, a lot of the themes in it are, are you know, quite positive um, as ter in terms of, I didn't want to write a bleak werewolf movie either. I mean, we are seeing the worst of humanity in this movie, but we're also seeing some of the best of humanity as well. And that was important to me. Love it. Um, I know you spent some time on set. Talk to us a bit about that experience and your involvement with the actual filmmaking or not that you know, any of it isn't the actual filmmaking. <laughs> you know I mean? No, no, no. The writer's <laughs> job is very circumscribed and my film was in very capable hands. I met Josh. Um, the Ubisoft team really liked him first and then they sort of passed me his materials and I looked at it and, you know, the most important thing for all of us is that we were on the same page about tone and, and I don't get a say in who directs my movie after it's written. Um, it's, it's actually not my movie anymore. Um, I'm a hired gun. I write a movie, I pass it on and my script is really there to attract a good director. So when we had, you know, uh, multiple directors want to come in and pitch on it, I had done my job. And from there, it's in Josh's hands. He helped with casting. Um, he put people together. He did some polishes on the script. He combined two characters. He, he, changed, uh, uh, he changed scenes that were too expensive to shoot. And, and uh, a lot of outdoor scenes had to become indoor scenes. And there was all kinds of stuff he had to do with the script when, when I was done. And, you know, he didn't need my help to do any of it. And he did an awesome job with it. And the actors... Um, really took their lead from him and he gave them sort of great motivations and really good instruction on, on what the tone was of our film and what we were trying to do. And, and it was really beautiful. And I just came to set as like, uh, you know, as like a tourist, it was really fun and exciting to see words I'd written come out of actors' mouths and, uh, and see them nail jokes and, you know, talk to me about the script. They all were really enthusiastic about the script, which was something I was so surprised and flattered about because I always have insecurities. And, and it was really, it was touching to have such an enthusiastic group of people say how much they like the script. And, and you know, it, it was great fun. I mean, I watched the big fireplace scene and it was impossible to shoot. And Josh just nailed it. He knew exactly how to get all the angles and get great performances out of everyone. So... You know, I gave one note. They were struggling with the line after uh, after Finn breaks the teacup, um, where um, uh, Catherine Curtin says uh, that was Royal Crown Derby, and it's like a throwaway line. <laughs> mm -hmm. But you know, in movies, so often you see someone throw something, and it has no significance at all that they've just thrown something. And for her, I was like, 
I was like, it's a throwaway, do it quickly. It's underneath everything. But, you know, it was just to attach some significance to the thing you had just thrown against the wall to get everyone's attention. It's like the joke you missed the first time. And then the second time you're like, oh, movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a neat moment too, because it undercuts all this dramatic tension. Like everyone is worried for their life. And then at that moment, she's like, that's the good top shelf whiskey that you're throwing away there, my friend, which like, priorities. like, hey, that is a priority. Yeah, exactly. So those, those moments were really, it was fun to watch them come to life and watch everyone's banter back and forth and the pacing of that. They got really clean reads from the actors too. And then that got tightened up in post. So I got to see a little bit too, how the sausage is made, mm-hmm. which is great for me. Um, Cause it helps me as a writer. And it also helps me, should I ever have directing aspirations? It's all great for the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You probably learned so much in that moment. Yeah. I mean, I, I love geeking out on this stuff. So having a growth mindset about all of it is really sort of where I live and, you know, what makes me happy. And I got to see a lot of, of, of how, how everything comes together. Cool. Um, on the growth mindset, I mean, assuming you can tell us anything, what are you working on next? What should we be looking out for? What's next for you? Um, you know, I, I, aspire to keep working in the horror comedy space. I also, um, would love to do something a little more serious, um, and, um, continue with werewolves because I think they're just such a wonderful metaphor for appetites. Um, you know, I have a few things that I'm going in on right now and we'll see how things fly, but everything's in a nascent stage and I'm terrified to jinx every, anything, but, uh, but I hope to, be back here, you know, in, in, next in a year or two more. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Can you talk a little bit about finding that balance between humor and horror? Because the the two like share a lot of similarities in terms of like how they build up, how they kind of build to it, like a point of tension and then offer a great release. So a lot of the ways the audience might re- react or their emotions mm-hmm. might get manipulated in a similar way by a good writer or director, how do you try to strike that balance between, like you said, having some tension in a movie or some scares in a movie, but also not taking it too seriously, but also not veering so far in the side of comedy that like the horror parts or the the, the suspenseful parts don't land. Yeah, so I think maybe I approach writing maybe in a different way than a lot of writers. I don't know. For me, it's an emotional tablet. And I always think the audience wants to feel this, then they want to feel this, then they need to feel this, then they think they're going to feel this and I'm going to make them feel this. And um, that's sort of how I approach the writing or telling a story. And for me, a lot of this comes back to when I was doing stand-up for years and years and years, um, which I did all through my 20s. It was a tremendous waste of time and a tremendous gift. Um, the best you know, training ground ever. I used to come to Boston actually and do the comedy studio in, in Harvard, Harvard Square. Square. Yeah. yeah. Spent many a Saturday nights there. Yep. Scorpion Bowls. Oh um, yeah. They're in Somerville now, but yeah, good times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in Somerville, uh, Somerville, I go to Redbones for uh, mm-hmm. barbecue. There you go. Um, um, but for me, it was always about, I was, I was hosting a lot and 
a friend of mine who worked at, who came out of dimension films said to me once, he's like, you can write horror too. And I said, what? And he was like, you, what you do is controlling people's emotions. You're one of those sick fucks, excuse my language. Who, oh, we swear all the time here. Okay. Me. You're one of those sick fucks who want to control how other people feel. You're making them have a response, which is laughter. And if you can make people have that response, you can have them have this other response, which is fear. Um, and it comes from the same place. And that somehow wedged itself in my little brain somewhere. And I think I've always worked from that place, which is like, I do want to control how you feel as you're watching. That's part of my aim. And so I have an emotional vision for what I'm writing, um, which when I'm asking people to read and tell me if they if they got it, what I'm asking is, did you feel this here? Um, because it, it's it's honestly it's an emotional tableau. It's a movie experience is is completely subconscious mm -hmm. and. And I really want to control how you feel. Yeah. Ooh. Sounds sinister, but alas, I messed up that way. <laughs> well, and it's funny because you mentioned like hosting comedy gigs as well as performing. And I know that that's a far different skill set. Like when you host, you can't show up your performers and you have to manipulate your audience like in a much different way. So you have all these different, all of these different yeah. ways you can manipulate. Cause I know like typically, we use like Mr. Rick Jenkins from the com comedy studio. Sure. As a, you know, he has his set routine when he's hosting and you're like, it's dad joke galore. But when he does his like straight comedy, it kills. And it's so yeah. different seeing him in those spaces. Yeah. A, a host is someone who's really friendly, but when you get up, it's a cold crowd and they're not yeah. an audience yet. You have to actually make them into an audience mm -hmm. um, that laughs together at the same time that are having a collective experience um, and that takes a certain amount of control and manipulation. I hate mm -hmm. to say it, but it's, yeah. you know, it's not something I care to do anymore, but learning how to do that was very, mm -hmm. very valuable to me as a writer. When your friend from Dimension Films said like, you could totally write horror and, you, and it sounded like that wasn't even something on your radar at the time. How much of a fan were you of the genre at the time? Like how, how, steeped in it were you would you say um I would say I love film mm -hmm. and I like genre the most and I like to mix them and to me that the true thrill of horror uh growing up was seeing women in life or death stakes and seeing women conquer life or death stakes. And it was a medium where I was seeing that, you know, you don't see a lot of women kick ass in the early eighties, but you see Jamie Lee Curtis in the closet with the knife. And, you know, she's about to, uh, she's about to let Mike Myers have it. So mm -hmm. um, it's, it's one of those things that really attracted me as a female viewer. And I always enjoyed that aspect of horror. I mean, certainly the Nightmare on Elm Street movies were seminal for me. Um, but I also just loved anything with Kurt Russell in it. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, really, you know, uh, anything that got me out of myself for a period. They, they really do grip you. But I, I liked a lot of genre movies, too. I can't mm -hmm. say I was strictly a horror buff. I sure. was, you know, I love samurai movies. I can't get enough Chanbara movies. I, I, uh, I, but I do tend to gravitate towards movies with really life or death stakes. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Well, I have to ask you my, like, ask everyone question. Um, what's your favorite scary movie? Ooh, mm, this is so, 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 so hard. Um, I'm going to have to go with just cause this is how I'm feeling right now. And I'm going to change my mind as soon as I get off, but evil dead Two, um, because I love the character Ash so much. Um, he's just one of the greatest movie characters ever created. And, uh, you know, I can't get enough of his ego. It's just so big and so fun. And I just had a, such a great experience with that movie. The first time I saw it, it just lives in me. We like just finished our two month mm-hmm. evil dead opus where I just gushed about Ash. So yes. <laughs> you're in good company. Excellent um, answer. Excellent yeah. answer. So to follow up on that evil dead Two remake or sequel. No, it's a sequel. Thank you. You are correct. Yeah. There's been some debate among the guests. <laughs> like I don't even, I won't even acknowledge the discussion. Um, yeah, that's debate. a dumb question. I agree. I agree. We'll try to come and try to, yeah, try to get me to discourse about it. And I'm like, sorry, there's no question to have. Um, cool. Well, we're here today chatting, of course, obviously where I was within, which will still pop up throughout this episode, but we are on our The Conjuring series. We are currently talking about The Conjuring 2. Mike, would you like to set us off, setting the stage? You know, no. Um, I okay. am actually enthralled right now by watching Oh, I'm sorry. This is so rude. Your, this is like, no, it's I'm awesome. Sorry. Like you're totally fixing your hair and like not missing a beat right now. Well, I didn't, so, you know. Um, no, I can, I can set the stage a bit. A little bit. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. Now I know how Apologies. it's like to be in the other end of that right now. What can I tell you? Um, yeah, so this is the follow-up to the first Conjuring movie. It came out after Annabelle. Um, it's funny, like my personal first experience with this movie was trying to get through it on four separate occasions. Like, and I love the first movie. Would put it on. I think it was like the my choice for a Halloween movie in like 2018. And I remember like putting it on. It was probably pretty late at night. We just got back from trick or treating. And after about a half hour, I tapped out. And it wasn't like it was a bad movie, but it was just like, I'm too tired. And even though I'm married to like a Cornish woman with a thick accent, I just couldn't keep up with the accents. And I just kept putting it on and putting it like four different times and would get a little bit more into it and always tune it out. And I remember you and I were talking like, I don't know if it was on the show or just as we were setting up how you said this was your favorite one. Um, it might be the best of the series. And I think you might be right. Like after finishing it twice in preparation for the show, I'm like, this movie's great. Um, and knowing what's to come later on in the series, I'm like, this might, this, this might be where it peaks. Um, because I don't, my only weird thought is I don't know if this movie came out first, if The Conjuring ser- as a series would have been as successful as it is. I think the first movie does a better job of maybe setting the world up for like, here's where it can possibly go. Um, But as a haunted house story and as a uh, continuation of like the Warrens, like it's perfect. It does so many things well, Um, which makes it a little bit disappointing with some of the movies we're going to cover in the next couple months. I kind of feel like, yeah, it's really sad how after The Conjuring 2, nothing ever came out again. It's like no. when Rocky ended after Rocky 3, you know, <laughs> it's really weird how 
nothing um, ever came out again. Lindsay, what was your first like time? Like, cause you, what was it that jumped out to you? Because you mentioned how much you love this movie overall. Like what stood out upon your first watch? Yeah, I saw all of these movies in theaters. Um, this one, I really liked the first Conjuring, but I certainly wasn't obsessed with it. Um, I was really into Annabelle, like we said. So when I watched the Annabelle movie, even though it wasn't the best one, I didn't care because I was just like really hyped for an Annabelle story. And I thought it was still a pretty successful uh, haunted house type story. Um, so then this one, I mean, I like it so much more. I think the warmth of the Warrens is played up more. I like the demon better. I like the story better. I like the twist better. Um, I think it's scarier. And so this one just like, I was like, oh, I like The Conjuring. And I remember there was so much hype surrounding it. And then I saw this one. I was like, oh, okay, I love this franchise. Like mm -hmm. I get it and I love it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I, I don't know why I didn't see this in theaters. Like I have no idea why I would have skipped it, um, it. and then just ordered it on Blue. I, I did. I mean, I think out. this is the kind of movie that like, it does deserve like the biggest possible screen treatment overall. Um, you know, Mishta, you said like how you like all different sort of genres, like, do you have like a favorite kind of like haunted house movie or series? Like, is there any, um, any that stand out? I mean, classically, the Overlook Hotel looms large for me, um, just because it's seminal. And I love everything Stephen King does. Um, that being said, um, I, I like, I, I I liked Amityville Horror, um, but I, 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 let me think. Poltergeist also loomed large for me. There's so many um, house movies that I think are great. Mm -hmm. I, I'm usually compelled, though, as a writer by the setup. Um, so for me, the ideal setup was they 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 move the stones, but not the graves. That was just always like just a like it's just such an easy setup and it lends itself so simply to a, a lot of really good stories. Yeah. Yeah. I feel sure. like without Poltergeist, we wouldn't have Insidious and then we wouldn't have Conjuring. I feel like. Oh yeah. Yeah. Insidious is the best Poltergeist remake of all time. Like, <laughs> yeah. end of story. And I wasn't even thinking about Insidious. Like that one is so good. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, and I, I rewatched that recently. I was just shocked by how much they did with so little money. It was just wonderful. Yeah, I love that movie. Yep. Another franchise, which I'm a very We will get to. We will get yeah, to it someday. in 20, we will. 2022. We will definitely, <laughs> yeah. that is the plan right now. Um, yeah. And we do have a list. Like we have a list of everything we're covering. I feel grown up and professional almost. We're, um, we're pros. So, you know, this movie, like they knew they were going to do it before the first one even hit, it sounds like, before the first one. They knew they had something on their hands walking out of test screenings. James Wan comes back to direct this and he co-writes the movie as well. And it sounds like this movie made like, what did this movie pull in? Like, it sounds like it made a bajillion dollars at the box office. 320 million worldwide, um, which was massive. I believe it did better than the first one. Yeah, by a pretty good amount. Yeah, yeah. at this point, like, that's why people have asked like, why do they keep making like the Annabelle movies and all the spinoffs? It's because like not a lot of investment, you know, they're relatively cheap to make and audiences will turn out for it. It's kind of like Marvel. It's like, if it has Marvel in front of it, you know, or if it has like the conjuring in front of it, like you're turning out in part because like you trust the brand 
and it hasn't gotten so tarnished yet that you know people are turned away from it so um what else went into like making this movie I mean, I think the coolest change for me is that they brought on Don Burgess as a cinematographer. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a guy who worked on Forrest Gump and Castaway, um, and now he's making a Conjuring movie. And this movie is gorgeous. It looks amazing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just like such a massive thing to bring someone like that on to create this type of movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love this detail you have in your notes here talking about like... Um, sending in like oh we're making a harm we're making a possession movie or an exorcism movie so we had to have like a representative from the church come and bless the set and well so yeah there was a whole like thing about that and everybody thought it was just because they're making an exorcism movie and what that all meant but apparently it was because the first filming was so spooky um, that for the second one they wanted to be really safe and there's this quote mm -hmm. here from uh vera formiga to Yahoo Movies, she said, I, uh, I've had, ex I've had freaky stuff happen. I've experienced some weird occurrences, especially since shooting this, like a teacup flying off a shelf. I oftentimes get little cuts in threes, like three claw marks. The first time around, I had a really prominent bruise that was like three claw mark bruises. There were a lot of weird, inexplicable things. Um, and apparently the producer, Peter Safran said that the film crew members had some like issues about waking up in the witching hour, which uh, we talked about with the exorcism of Emily Rose, and that they had like a sense of unease while they were shooting. So they were like haunted after the first movie. So they were like, we need someone here for for the second. Sure. <laughs> yeah, which very spooky. Yeah, I'm not sure I buy it. I definitely- I buy it. I choose buy to. Buy it, you're in, you're, you're in, <laughs> yeah. you're all in, okay. I choose to buy um, it. So, we talk about the real case for a minute let's do it this is based yeah. on the enfield haunting um we chatted about amityville for a hot second that mm -hmm. was a very famous warren case and the warrens were really really accused of that being a hoax so when the enfield haunting happened and this movie covers it a lot they were very very afraid of it being called another hoax because they yeah. were like already being called con artists and everyone was saying it was a hoax so they were like okay this time we're going to go and we're going to investigate and we're going to see if it's a hoax. Um, and then, yeah, there was this, this real occurrence yeah. that is now called the Enfield haunting yeah. or the Enfield poltergeist. Tell us about it, Mike. So it's one of the more famous cases of hauntings in modern British history. Um, and it's important to note, like, unlike the movie, which shows the Warrens, like essentially the Warrens like shack up with the Hodgson family during this movie. It seems like they're there for like a couple weeks. Um, the Warrens were out there for like a day or two at the most, by most accounts of like what actually went on. And if you actually go to the official site for the Warrens, like they have a number of their case files that are up that you can pursue if you want. Like there's not even a listing of the Enfield haunting on there for them, which is pretty interesting because there's like a, now like a whole movie based on it. Um, and I know some of the marketing for it was like, this is a case like so scary that the Warrens like have never opened it up to anyone before. It's like, well, it's more like they weren't really there for it. They're kind of inserted and like, that's all right. I mean, like basically you're creating a movie here so it doesn't have to be like 100%. Um, in the run up to the release of The Conjuring 2, one of the lead investigators of the Enfield case and a member of the Society for Psychical, I'm going to mispronounce this, the Society of Psychical Research, Guy Lyons Playfair, which is the, or Guy Lyons Playfair, which is the most British name 
you could possibly come up with right now, unless it was like Sir Rummington or something. He claimed that aside from a cursory walk through the home, the Warrens never really looked into the case at all. So this is his quote. He's like, they did turn up once. I, and I can't do a British accent. I should have Claire oh God, come out and maybe read an this accent. part right now. Um, <laughs> so they did turn up once, I think, at Enfield. And all I can remember is Ed Warren telling me that he could make a lot of money for me out of it. Like, that sounds like Ed Warren. So I thought, well, that's all I need to know about you. And I got myself out of his way as soon as I could. I, I said I was not impressed. He didn't spend, I don't think he went there more than once. And I did read somewhere a transcript of a lengthy interview, which he's alleged to have with one of the girls, which they couldn't remember giving him. And it was describing all sorts of marvelous wonders, which I don't think ever happened. I think he was a complete, um, well, you can fill in whatever word. So very British, very like, I don't really want to say something bad, but yeah, this guy is not, you know, who he purports to be. He had nicer things to say about Lorraine Warren, who he called lovely and was like, I'm sure that she believes she experienced what she did, but a lot of it seemed made up. So the film focuses on the younger Janet at age 11, um, but at the time it was like, ooh, there's that thunder. At time was both her and her 13 year old sister, Margaret, that claimed to be affected by the haunting. The case was investigated for like a year and a half, like from August 77 through the end of 1979. The girls claimed that an unseen force would make them levitate. They claimed to hear gruff voices. They claimed to be able to speak in these voices. Furniture would move on its own and objects would be thrown around the house. So like in the movie, there were a pair of police officers investigating a disturbance that was called in. They did report that a chair did appear to move on its own. Um, but at the very least, they could not pin down the nature of what made it move. Playfield would go on to write a book, This House is Haunted, The True Story of a Poltergeist. It was published in 1980, and the book does suppose that some of what the girls claimed to be, what, some of what the girls claimed could be chalked up to like an otherworldly phenomena, but he remained skeptical of their story as a whole. And he does believe that Janet and Margaret made up most of the story. At one point when interviewers asked the girls how it felt to live in a haunted house, Janet replied, oh, it's not haunted. And then her sister told like elbowed her and told her to shut up. Um, the objects seemed to get thrown only when nobody was looking at the girls. And the photographic evidence of Janet levitating sure looks a lot like a kid that is just like jumping up and down in her bed. Um, that would be like, I don't know, do you, either of you remember like the mosh girl mem from like the early 2000s no so it's like an early early mm -hmm. mem that was on like punk message boards everywhere and it was this girl in a pit and she has like the most fierce looking face of all time like she is like ready to fuck kids up in the pit and there's a dude behind her that looks absolutely terrified like that picture got like like godzilla destroying tokyo like bridges getting not like it was inserted everywhere so, oh yeah, I do remember that. Okay. I know that now that you're, I'm like, I think I saw it on like E-Bombs World. Yeah, vaguely. <laughs> yeah. You could take the picture of like Janet like levitating on the bed yeah. and then like, it would in like, put it in like a Fugazi concert from like 1988 or a minor threat show and it would not look out of place. You would think like, oh, that girl's like just in the pit right now, um, not levitating. Um, 
still like the story remains immensely popular in Britain. Um, the first fictionalized adaptation of it was 1992's Ghost Watch. Can you hear that? That's thundering like crazy now. Um, so Ghost Watch is a BBC news program that quote unquote investigates a haunting that two girls are experiencing. It was done on Halloween night. And what set it apart was like, they actually had the real BBC news team on this special. So they didn't report it as a fictional. I think they had like a small disclaimer at the beginning of the show and that was it. It freaked people out. Like people were calling in. They were so terrified of what they were seeing because they play it completely straight. It's awesome. Shutter had it for a while. I don't think it's streaming anywhere right now, but definitely seek it out. Um, 2007, there was a documentary from the BBC called Interview with the Poltergeist. And in 2015, I think a year after this movie, Sky Television produces a mini series on the case titled The Enfield Haunting. And the focus on that one in terms of the investigation is from like the British investigators that were there. So yeah, that is the, that is the true story of the Enfield haunting, but you know, we're here to talk about the movie. So what works about this film? Like where does the Conjuring 2 go right? Um, I mean, it takes a lot of, um, I don't want to say creative liberties, like, of course it does. Um, so in this movie, it's much more about the Warrens visiting this family. It's a family story. It's about staying together as a family. Um, Ed is very adamant, like he even pulls the whole, like, where's your husband? Any chance of reconciliation? Like, mm -hmm. it's very much Ed. in that sense, but there's Ed. certainly, oh, Ed. Um, but there's certainly a lot of like the warmth there and about, you know, even when they all leave and the mother and Janet stay in the house and the kids leave, um, when the Warrens come back, they're like, no, let's get some family time. But so it creates a lot of, um, warmth around this character. Uh, we get a younger version of Janet who is played by Madison Wolf. Um, ooh, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Um, ooh. yeah uh who knows maybe she'll be in your next film um and she's really excellent they play a lot i think what's cool in this movie is there's a lot of other lore brought into it that i thought was like completely made up for the mm -hmm. film altogether but actually wasn't um i don't want to uh skip too far ahead but the crooked man is actually something that exists outside the conjuring universe which i did not know hmm so what yeah. is it what is the crooked man so it's an actual, know. yeah, it's an actual nursery rhyme from the 1800s. It's like a famous British nursery rhyme. Um, and there's like some grim history to it about potentially it being a political uh, cartoon mm -hmm. about like a crooked politician hmm. um, that he's like a crooked man who takes a crooked walk. Uh, but it is like a nursery rhyme that was told to kids that may or may not have had a political allegory in the 1800s. And uh, yeah, so I thought it was like some really creepy thing made up for the movie, which of course manifests as this like toy of a mm -hmm. crooked man in the literal sense um, that Janet kind of becomes and it's absolutely mm -hmm. terrifying. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll get a spinoff of it eventually and I can't wait to line up it's for announced. it. It's announced. Yeah, it is announced. And then like COVID <laughs> put things on hold for a bit. Yeah. I couldn't figure out how the crooked man figured into the story. It's spooky. I don't know. Okay, that's pretty much it. I mean, we're talking about the Conjuring Cinematic Universe, you know, okay. the Marvel version of, or sorry, our mm. version of an MCU. So okay. you had to throw in characters like the Crooked Man. Okay. Or where would we be? 
not here. Yeah. A couple movies, a couple fewer movies. <laughs> fewer movies. But aside from The Crooked Man, uh, with whom I'm obviously very consumed, this is our first introduction to The Nun, um, who I think has become the main antagonist in the franchise as a whole. Um, we'll get to it a lot when we chat about The Conjuring 3, but Valak has become like the main protagonist. We got a The Nun movie. She shows up in the end of, uh, well, Spoiler alert. She shows up in the end of one of the Annabelle movies. So she becomes the main villain eventually. Um, and she's actually like buried. She doesn't show up till the third act of this. It's our first mm -hmm. intro to a very large villain, which I Wait, think is very exciting. Is Valak the witch woman in part three? She is not. Okay. I don't remember her in part three at all then. She's not in part three. She is referenced in part three. She's referenced. Okay. I'm like, I don't, okay. I mean, that movie's pretty for, well, spoiler alert for okay. future episodes of the show. That movie could be Conjuring <laughs> but 3. But she does show up again. She conjuring is the, in The Nun, and we'll get to it. She has connections to Annabelle, mm -hmm. which have connections to the witch in. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you mentioned the um, family ties in this movie. And I think mm -hmm. like what Juan, like just like in the first movie where Juan has the camera that follows like the tracking shot that goes throughout the whole house and establishes exactly what's going on. Like it does a really wonderful job here. That same shot is used as you follow the mom and the four children throughout the home. And I think within like 15 seconds, it kind of establishes their circumstances. Like it's a family that is living kind of like it's a lower class family in Britain. There's definitely a lot of poverty. There's definitely struggles, but there's also like a lot of warmth and love in that home. Like they might not have a lot of money, but they do have each other. Um, and there's a lot of like sneaky humor in this movie. And, you know, Mishnah, like we talked about, like your script, I think interjects a lot of warmth between it's in characters that we normally might be compelled to root against. Um, sure. And you mentioned like not wanting to take sides with your your characters, which I find really hard. I'm like, we write a character you're like, oh, I fucking hate you, character. But you know, right? Um, how do you go about doing that? Like from your perspective, how does this move? Does this movie succeed, or the Conjuring movie as a whole succeed without that kind of warmth between the Warrens? Oh no! I mean, I think people watch the Conjuring movies partially to you know have a great horror experience, but I think. People also just want to spend 90 minutes with the Warrens. Mm -hmm. I think that's a major part of it. Just like the, the same way, uh, you know, the same way they go to see Guardians of the Galaxy to spend, you know, 90 minutes with with uh, with with the Guardians. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, they they've taken on their own life and and uh, they're familiar characters now. And and uh, I, I certainly, you know, I, I've watched I think th you know three of them maybe. I, I'm trying to remember, but it's always about the Warrens. It's always about mm -hmm. like, I'm going to sit down and hang out with the Warrens for, yeah. you know, a certain amount of time. And, and that's, that's, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that tracking shot, which, you know, I love, because I think aside from it setting the scene of the family, what it really does is it sets the stage for the scares. So we get one shot where we completely get the geography of this movie is going to take place in this house. This is where everyone is at any given time. Um, and it's a shot that I'm obsessed with and think about and talk about a lot. Um, I know, Michelle, you didn't shoot Werewolves Within, but there is a similar thing that happens in your movie where when we get Finn getting to the inn and kind of going up the stairs and get that overhead shot, 
sure. kind of seeing the lay of the land. Was that something, I mean, again, obviously you didn't direct it. Was that something you were considering as you were like putting those scenes together and the geography or conversely, um, or alternatively, I guess I should say, was that something that when you saw it, you were like, oh, cool, yes. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I think in drafts that we went through, uh, a huge part of it was orienting the viewer as far as 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 where where they where everything was going to take place. So orienting them in terms of the town, orienting them in terms of the inn. Um, there's that uh, aerial shot when you first come in, um, so you have a sense of you know, where Dave dies. Um, so that's all part of just. Um, getting people into a place where they're, they're oriented and they're ready to be surprised. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. for sure. And part of what really makes this work is the rare chemistry that Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmesia have with one another. Um, like that is not once in a generation, but it's a really rare chemistry that two performers can have and that allows it to carry over. And I think it's something that as a writer, you kind of like hope and pray you can get like just a fraction of the what they those two share when you're doing your writing Mishnah like do you have performers in mind like even though you might not land them like do you base any of your characters off like any before like oh it would be I would love to get like you know xyz in this particular role I don't think I really think in those terms. I mean, I, I, I by the way, you're right about Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson. I would love to hear that they hate each other off screen. Mm-hmm. That would be like the best news. Mm-hmm. Impossible. Uh, yeah. I, I know it's impossible because they seem like very nice people, but mm-hmm. I, I always love hearing that. Oh no, they hate each other. Um, <laughs> um, I don't, I don't think they do, but uh, I think in terms of dynamics. So mm-hmm. a lot of the dynamics I wanted to create for the, the sort of romantic part of the story were, um, I think I looked at like the office, you know, and, mm. um, you know, really fun meet cutes um, because, you know, I, their relationship is going to just get totally turned topsy turvy throughout this movie. And, and so I wanted to establish a really cute, just cute, cute, cute dynamic so that I could then mess with them um, and, and that that would be satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's what, I mean, they, the leads have so much chemistry. Like they're so funny. I was like trying to think of if I ever had to, not that I would ever be editing roles within, but I was like, how do you cut them off? Like, how do you know when to end the scene? <laughs> I mean, seriously, they could just keep talking and it's just, it's adorable. They're mm-hmm. adorable. Um, so which is not what you say a lot about a lot of uh, horror adults. movie couples, but, right. yeah. but, uh, or, or adults, or adults but yeah. they mm-hmm. are, they are absolutely adorable. So they were great. I was thinking too about why do people like aside from the fact that people do return over and over again for the Warrens I think that is a big part of the draw of these movies the other draw like why are these movies so successful and I really was thinking about this like we it they're supernatural movies and they ask big existential questions like is there something else that is out there after this, good or bad. And I was thinking about why at this particular moment in our history, why are supernatural movies so popular? And it got me thinking that like in the past 20 years, we've had like 9-11, we've had two endless wars, we've had the economic, like two economic calamities that 
were both once in a generation and you have like a generation after ours, like the millennial generation and generation Z that have like suffered through two huge economic crises and you pile student loan debt on top of that. You pile the fact that like oh, housing is no longer affordable for a lot of people. This idea that like, if you graduate from college and work really hard, you will now get like a very low paying job that is beneath you and won't make ends meet. And you can work 60 hours a week and ha ha, fuck you, the boomers have theirs. So all of these I things I am a millennial, I am not, they're not the generation after me. <laughs> after, well, after you was Generation Z, right? Yeah, no, but you said um, millennials were after. Us. I'm thinking Generation X. I'm Generation That's X. Fine. I'm sorry. I just feel like so, you called me old and I needed. Uh, I no, apologize. Okay. You're not, neither. No one is old. I'm totally joking. I am very old. Um, I'm cranky. But I do, <laughs> yeah. My knee aside, hurts. Yeah, aside from the, the bit about the, you know, stresses as a result of that, mm-hmm. you actually touched on something when you talked about housing that I think we talked about this when we talked about the first conjuring. Mm-hmm. Um, they there's always a we can't move yeah. we can't leave this house when you're like just leave and I think so many movies really have to tackle it like in American Horror Story they do get an apartment mm-hmm. like they leave the house and they get a bad apartment but they have to come back because they need the space yeah. and we saw what they did with Sinister about it how it was them. leaving that actually was a bad thing mm-hmm. and we've seen movies play with it before I feel like this does a really good job establishing like those like first few minutes do so much yeah. or the first few minutes with the with the um mm-hmm. family in Enfield do so much where you're like yeah these people cannot leave this house there's nowhere they can go like economically yeah. they even say like oh they're just trying to get like another a better housing like they're trying to get better public housing than the one they're in like no like they like their house like this is as good as it's going to kind of get for them um the other thing i thought like why this is popular is like there's a comfort i think in thinking like this world might be shit but hopefully it's not the be all end all hopefully after this there is something else and maybe just maybe it will be better than this is and i think like this particular moment in time is really suited to that not to get all deep in the feels and it's not even a religious thing although these movies are obviously like very steeped in catholicism and christianity but there's a comfort in knowing maybe there's like a bigger more expansive world in the metaphysical than there is right now so yeah i also think when you serve what once you come out the other side of a really good horror movie Mm -hmm. you feel sort of stronger I don't know what it is, but I do sort of feel like oh, I'm stronger than I walked into mm-hmm. this movie. Like I, I, I've had this ride and I survived it. You mm-hmm. did it, and uh, and I could probably take down a werewolf now. I, I could probably, you know, if, if a ghost walked around the corner right now, I'd kick his ass. I'm You'd pretty sure I punch a ghost. I could take him. I could take him. <laughs> yeah. I could. I could, yeah. I saw Hereditary in theaters. I can do anything, and. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. I think you leave and you're like, you do feel a little fortified you do. and tough. Yeah. For sure. And there and is like, that, there are those studies that show like fan, fans of horror have weathered the pandemic better than most. They've reported like lower levels of, of anxiety. They've reported like higher levels of resiliency because they feel like, you know, if you're a zombie movie fan, like I prepared say, my, my whole plan life for was already shit. on my fridge. Yeah. I already was. Yeah. I'm ready. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think uh, Michelle, you touched on it a bit before when you were saying why you like genre, like 
horror really deafens everything, or maybe that's not the right word. Horror really shuts everything down. And I think that's a big part of it. Like the more anxious you are, sometimes you really gravitate towards something scary because it's louder than everything going on. Like, sure. And it, it makes this, this hierarchy of needs gets very clear, you know, when you, when you're in a horror movie, it's like survive and live. then everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Live Bye. then everything else. Who cares about your job right now? Yeah. It's okay. Yep. It's going to be fine. It's going to yeah. be fine. You're not yeah. those poor people. Yeah. It's fine. We're not trapped in this house with Valak, um, sure. which is a huge win. We, we don't want that. So my favorite non-scare scary scene of this movie is the talk show scene like i love that scene and and um what did you think of it Lindsay? like because this is like the one moment where someone might question the credentials of the warrens in any of these movies well these movies do a lot of what i always call the warrens pr um where we get the warrens being challenged and the very lovely patrick wilson being offended by it um and the talk show scene does a really good job of this skeptic being like, there's no evidence or any proof in the Amityville haunting and you completely made it up. And he says what we're familiar with hearing. He says a quote really similar to what you just said about the skeptic who wrote the book on this case. Um, he says things like, Ed has never been to a house that he didn't think was haunted. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it always ends with Ed in like a green room, like, can you believe that? And we love him. We love Ed Warren. We're like, yeah. I know, I can't believe he said something so mean to you. And then you get uh, Lorraine being like, oh, like, honey, like, don't let him get to you. Like, we're not mm-hmm. threatened by him. We know our truth. And so you always get like those Warren's, Warren PR scenes. It's like, I know, count to 10. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Like, you're right, babe. Um, yeah. It's fine because I love you and we believe each other. And that that carries through. Like when Lorraine is trying to warm up to Janet, she tells a story of not being believed. Mm-hmm. And Janet's like, you know, what, tell me about it. And then she's like, I finally met the one person who believed me. And she's like, what did you do? And she's like, I married him. Mm-hmm. And they have that like moment of like, they're the only two that believe each other. And it's so lovely. Yeah. But yeah, the talk show scene is very funny, um, especially watching it kind of thinking like, okay, Warren family. <laughs> and it's like more Warren PR. I love it because like it definitely manips- manipulates you. Like even I, who am like, you know, I'm going to be doing a bonus show to give you a week where like we like expose the, we don't expose anymore. <laughs> yeah. We talk calmly, but we're like, I'm even like, yeah, how dare you, sir? How dare you impugn the reputation of these two beautiful people? Because the skeptic they bring on, like you have Patrick Wilson, who's a very handsome buff man. Yeah, I think just I love yeah. him. And you have a dude who like is wicked schlubby. He's like, you can feel the, sw- you can hear him sweating when he's in this like really ill-fitting suit. And he sounds like an even like whinier, like Richard Louis Dreyfus. He sounds like, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, he does, right? I'm not, he's like, I feel like you just mixed a few names together. Did I? I <laughs> Wait, yeah. I did. Um, I did. But yes, of, the like, skeptics Richard, are always... Yeah. And this I is not a lot. judgment of their appearance. This is like the movie's choice. The skeptics are always ugly yeah. up against the like very gorgeous, very well-dressed Patrick mm-hmm. Wilson looking yeah. like he smells great with his perfect hair. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then this like nasty trolley looking guy being like, mm-hmm. you're a liar. Yeah. yeah. How dare you, sir? And <laughs> it's always like they like, how dare you impugn my wife, sir? Like you say what yes. you want about me, but you leave. My beautiful wife. I'm like, I believe you, Vera. So, I love when you me. see a picture of the real Ed Warren who just looks like... It's not like Patrick Wilson, but few do. No, few, few men do. are walking Ken dolls. It's just, there aren't a lot of okay. them. 
But people do not watch these movies for talk show sequences. No. People watch these movies because they want to get the, you know, the, the spooky just, stuff. The spooky stuff. Thank you very much. So, Lindsay, what works? Okay, I have two very favorite scenes. Um, one that I love is the uh, interview scene, which I think is like the scene mm-hmm. in the movie where Janet is being interviewed on tape to capture her speaking with the voice of this old man. Um, and it's a really cool scene because uh, they have her drink water. So she has to keep water in her mouth to prove that the voice is not coming from her, is coming out of her in a way. So she puts water in her mouth. And then they ask her to speak and she says, oh, he won't let me speak until you all turn around. So they all have to put their backs to her and she is out of focus. And it is Patrick Wilson in perfect focus, delivering all his lines, not looking anybody, not looking at any of the other actors speaking to the camera. And it's like one really long shot of just him asking questions and reacting. First of all, he's amazing. He does that whole scene by himself in a lot of ways. And I think he does a really cool job. Um, and he does like a lot of, you know, awkward things like holding his cross so she can see it and things like that. What's also really cool is she is completely out of focus and you see this in focus or sorry, this out of focus face appear over her as of this old man, which is pretty cool because you kind of think like, oh, if they were looking, maybe they would see him. Um, I love all of that about the scene, but what I really love is the Foley in this because in the Foley, it's basically sound effects. Um, we hear Janet put water in her mouth. We hear her put the cup down. We hear her spit it out. And that is the only way we as the audience are able to track that she's telling the truth because she puts the water in her mouth again. Everyone turns around. We don't hear her put the cup down. We don't hear her spit it out. So we believe it is in her mouth the entire time. And what's cool about that is it does so much work that later in the movie, when, um, the woman whose name I forget from the born identity, um, questions it she says like well she could have spit the water out she made you not even look at her when they're all questioning what really happened as an audience we just for whatever reason we believe janet and mm-hmm. if you really rewatch it again you're like it's because i heard where the water was yeah i think that's really cool it's just something i always want to point out i love that scene i really love how like you said you i not only thought that like bill's face was like superimposed over her in that moment but it looks like there's like this subtle distortion of the body where it seems to elongate at that point and yeah, it's no longer janet sitting yeah she kind of hunches herself up and like there's some real humor in that like the way like patrick will it's, it's kind of harkens back to the first movie where he's like you know it's kind of like sometimes a demon is like stick stepping in some gum like it's like a subtly funny performance and there's some really good i think like subtly funny moments in this movie as well but that scene in particular worked really well the other scene, one of the scenes that did it for me is when Janet, all right, Sam, you can come up and join. When Janet is at home sick um, from school that day, because that brings me back to days where like, I would call out sick from school as a little kid, mom and dad would be at work and I'd be home alone. And like every little noise would freak me out. And the idea of like the remote not being where it's supposed to be, um, and I think this is something that Juan does really well. Like it's a really qui- mostly quiet scene. Like most of James Wan's jump scares play out a lot like a Nirvana song where it's very quiet, very subtle. 
and then the guitars come crashing in and it becomes very explosive and his scares kind of go off of that model where a lot of this is very simple things like a tv channel changes uh, a remote is not where it's supposed to be and you think that's going to be the whole scare and that in and of itself is like really really scary and then like his face appears and it says get out of my house and it's like old british ghost that's fucking terrifying that looks like jacob marley from like a christmas carol i'm i'm frightened um i love it i love how that works um yeah and i think i mean back on sound and mish i'm going to drag you back into this bit about foley um your movie has fun with it too maybe even as a viewer like the werewolves within has a distinct lack lack of gore like we see some we see a, a db as they say but there's not a lot of gore in it and there's a lot of suggestion like we don't know is there a werewolf who is the werewolf but we get a lot of sounds of the werewolf can you maybe chat a bit about that and how that worked in your movie you know i feel like um that's something that josh is really good at i don't know if you guys saw his earlier movie scare me josh yes. rubin the director of werewolves within did a really fun movie called scare me and scare me works almost entirely on Foley. Um, so I would say pretty conclusively that Foley is really Josh's Ballywick. Um, and uh, I, I remember seeing Scare Me and just thinking, you know, this was when we were looking for a director for Werewolves Within and just thinking like, this is really invented Foley work. I mean, I, I, I he's, all they're doing is telling stories, but the way the Foley sort of animates these stories in this cabin as they're talking is uh is is was something really novel and I, I knew that the sound would be amazing on werewolves um because he's he's just great at, at bringing in these effects and and really creating atmosphere so not not my not my job um mm -hmm. but um we had a, we had a really great sound person on werewolves and and josh is is also like he's he's in that mm -hmm. Space. As we record this, like happy birthday, Josh Rubin. I think it's oh, yeah. birthday. happy birthday, Josh Rubin. Today. It's not your birthday when this drops, but we'll go back in time. So yes, today um, is Josh's birthday. Excellent. So the other that like you had mentioned before, Valak and the nun, Lindsay, and you have a lot here on speaking of Foley, there's your dog. And right. that, by the way, the I love your dog, but when he shakes his ears and I'm editing, I always the loudest sound. It's I so always loud. jump. It freaks me out. I know it's so loud. Way. I listen. He's there. He goes. He's a he's a podcast bummer. Um, so yeah. I'm going to say probably the best way to end our talk on the Conjuring Two. I'm turning the floor over to you, Valak. What did you turned up some awesome shit here? We're going to blow through Valak really quickly. I obviously love Valak the demon as it exists uh, in the movie, um, but. There's still, it's questionable as to whether or not Valak is based on the Valak that exists in, in demon lore. Um, so there is a real demon named Valak. The K was, I think, created for the series, but it's been spelled a few different ways. Most of the time, V-A-L-A-C. Not a nun, but a sinister child with the ability to conjure serpents. So there was a 17th century text that basically said Valak controlled a legion of serpentine spirits and can summon them uh, to do his evil bidding. He looks almost like a cherub with like giant wings. Um, yeah, let's see. So it was the 62nd spirit listed in Solomon, according to which he appeareth like a boy with angel wings riding a two-headed dragon. 
Um, and yeah, his special pow uh, power, according to the text, is finding snakes and hidden treasures while leading an army of 30 demons. Uh, according to the Lesser Key of Solomon, a book on demonology from the 17th century, he is the grand president of hell. So I do think that this is a very different character um, than the Valak that exists uh, in mm. demonology. But um, Lorraine spends a lot of time saying this is the closest I ever want to be to hell and really talks about Valak as like this, the most hellish close to hell she's ever been. Yeah. So I do think that kind of makes sense that the grand president of hell would potentially do that. Um, but that said, Valak is potentially um, based on a real encounter. So there is a an article that was in Esquire that is from um, Lorraine's, and Lorraine's son-in-law. So named Tony Spera. So the nun was this uh, phantom that bears a resemblance to a real spectral nun the Warrens encountered during a trip to the haunted Borley Church in Southern England in the 1970s. After learning about a string of eerie events at the church, including bells ringing without warning, rumors of a headless monk thought to have left cryptic messages on the wall, and a ghostly nun spotted walking around at night. The Warrens recruited several photographers to accompany them in a, guest, um, in a quest to capture evidence of the spirit and they believe that they came face to face with this demonic nun. So there's a photo, we will post it uh, with this episode, but they essentially set up to try and capture photos. And there's a photo where there may or may not be a spectral vision of a nun, which is potentially where we get Valak from. Yeah. And it's the ultimate Warren foil. Done really well here. Like I like the introduction of her in the painting, like Ed not really knowing it's, oh, I just had this nightmare and I just painted this absolutely horrifying thing which again like much like somewhat we talked in the annabelle episode about how i would end a relationship if someone brought home annabelle hmm. the minute the minute someone like when my wife and i moved in together i had like a really nice framed poster of like warzog's nosferatu and she was like we can definitely move in together that's great that's not coming with like that was one of the compromises like so like, i can't look at this in my home every day um, which, you know, fair. I mean, it's one of those things you're like, don't love it, but it's both of our places. So if that makes you uncomfortable, we have to respect that. Um, I feel like if somebody I was living with hung up that picture of the nun, that would be another immediate, like, okay, one of us has to pack our bags and go. Hmm. I mean, I wouldn't love it. No. What is your deal breaker? I'll post this to both of you. Like, what are your deal breakers? Like, what is the... I, well, I will, oh gosh. Um, a true story is one time I met a dude, this isn't going to be really short, but my friends were like, what was your deal breaker? And I was like, I don't know, I don't know. And this is back when you would like look people up on Facebook and you could like do it with mm -hmm. the first name and find them. And I was like, oh no, he's so great. Like nothing, he's so perfect. I love this guy. I can't believe that I've come across him. And um, I looked him up on Facebook and the photo was him uh, carrying um, a deer's, head by the antlers and it was just like bleeding and i was like oh that's that's it that's the done deal breaker. we're done that's a that's <laughs> a good me. deal breaker um yeah so there you go i i'm actually pro hunting well <laughs> sorry about that i like i like a i like a good cut of venison and mm -hmm. there's too it, many deer but it wasn't uh, the hunting per se it was the it was like the bloody carcass the, bloody of the carcass that i was like you know what don't love it but yeah, yeah hunters typically good. take better care of the environment than none. I mean, they usually do have a very respectful, but Listen. yeah, the bloody deer head, I can understand. Um, 
I mean, I would say a gun, I think would be a deal, mm -hmm. deal breaker for me. Uh, just yeah. like that's that's just it's very it's very simple. I mean, I, I might say, you know, there's a few movies that that mm -hmm. like if you had a yeah, I, I, maybe, you know, maybe if you loved Titanic, if you had a Titanic poster, that would be a deal breaker for me. I'll sure. say that that would be a total complete deal breaker. I <laughs> like we have nothing in common. I would be, would be I, like, I, I can't talk to you. There you go. Just yeah. Nothing in common. It's not yeah, a judgment of you personally. I just know we don't right. have this in common. This is a non-starter. Very valid. <laughs> Very valid deal breaker. I had a Texas Chainsaw Massacre poster above my bed in my mid twenties, and my an ex girlfriend who remains one of my best friends to this day was like, "Look, here's a deal. Got you a say anything poster because I know you love that movie too. That's coming down. Your luck will change the minute this goes up." And she was right. I mean, she was definitely. Cause she was like the minute someone walks in here for the first time and sees this, most of them are going to turn, turn tail at that point. So, you know, so she was right. I mean, it definitely did have a positive impact, but I do miss that poster in my room. Um, okay. So long way of saying like, I love the introduction of the done in this. I think the scene where the shadow walks across the room and then like comes out on the edge of the pictures if it grabs it, it runs out. Like again, quiet quiet scare like that's horrifying watching that shadow walk in place and then it gets that like really explosive energy with the nun comes tearing ass at lorraine at that point that moment and then the last thing i'll say is the kids in the amityville house when the bodies are like posed one way and then it cuts and they're posed a different way that shit always that displacement of the bodies right away always freaks me out like that's something that gets under my skin a lot scary movie well i guess no better place to wrap than yeah. on speaking of valak if y'all watch this movie again after this you're like oh new context i am gonna watch it again um play spot the valak valak is peppered throughout this movie the name is screaming at you the whole time um and as lorraine spends the whole movie searching for the name of this demon this demon is begging her to find it so spot it let us know which ones you find i want to hear where you saw valak throughout this movie okay. and you have them here but we'll save it maybe next we'll episode save it. when we do the nun just reveal it then yeah okay. okay there you Excellent. go all right um all right any final thoughts um no i was just gonna say to our guests where can we find you if you want us to find you um and to follow you and see more of your work uh you can find me on instagram at coffee and wolf with two f's excellent, excellent. And, you can, and you can find me at smash travis s-m-a-s-h-t-r-a-v-e-s -S -E and uh yeah you'll be able to find all my work there excellent you can find me at mike underscore snoonian you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com pod and the pendulum follow us over on Twitter at pod and pendulum and you can listen to my other show psychoanalysis a horror therapy podcast where we cover horror through the lens of mental health and mental health issues every other week with Jen uh, with Jen Faratu and Laura Understall you can find us on the consequence of sound podcast network Mishna thank you so much for joining us tonight it's been a pleasure to talk oh, about Werewolves me. Within. And again, listeners, it is, it's probably the, my favorite thing I've watched all year, like in terms of like new releases, like it is going to top a lot of best ofs at the end of this year. It is out now, July 2nd. It is out on video on demand. 
wherever you order movies from Amazon, Vudu, all of those platforms. It is playing theatrically in select markets. My understanding is like it is kind of kicking ass theatrically. Like it's kind of head up like the, for the non-wide releases, like it's, it's kicking butt. It's punching above its weight glass. Mm -hmm. You love to see it. Love to see it. So it's a hoot. It's a good time. It's a good time in the theater for really is for someone looking for a satisfying good old time in the theater a reason to go back or or on demand yeah watch it with your friends make popcorn and is there any plans for a physical release for a blu-ray or dvd release or 4k release or i don't know but i'm gonna call criterion excellent <laughs> i'll write the essay <laughs> be, yeah call criterion see what they're up to see if they got some space Go I big like or it. go home at that point is what you're saying. <laughs> so I love it. 10 disc special edition box set. Five yeah, director's say, this cuts. The best werewolf movie you're going to see in 2021. Great. Great. <laughs> Old words. Old words. We're going to hold <laughs> you to know, that. So. Last question. This is uh, either or. American Werewolf in London or The Howling? Oh, you're pegging, I mean, Landis against Dante. It's, I can't, I can't. I can't. Um, you have to. I, okay. We'll keep you on uh, until you answer. For the humor and for Griffin Dunn as a rotting right decomposing corpse. Um, speaking conversationally, like he just, you know, just, just oh. brought a cup of coffee with him and is going to shoot the shit with you. Mm-hmm. I, I got to go with American Werewolf in London. Right rotting decomposing corpse. Absolutely right answer. My favorite movie of all time. Love that movie. It was what we rented right. at theater for my 40th and that's what we watched. Yeah. And that like conversational grotesque is actually, I feel like uh, the same thing you see in They Live that works so well in that movie as yeah. well. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. Well, listeners, thank you so much. We want to say thanks again for your support um, as we enter our second year of doing, or third year of doing the show. Um, we will be back I know it's bananas we'll be back in two weeks with I believe Annabelle Creation is the next movie in the list so like I said this is the peak so I'm going to do my best to stay positive and (laughs) find some good things to say about Annabelle Creation in good weeks but I know Lindsay you have a lot of great things I have lots of great things to say excellent so I will be the Statler and Waldorf to your Fozzie Bear All right. (laughs) We are out of here. Have a great one.